Welcome to Half Hour of Heterodoxy, featuring conversations with scholars and authors and ideas from diverse perspectives. Here's your host, Chris Martin. Amy Edmondson is my guest on this episode. She's an organizational psychologist at Harvard Business School, and she's known for her highly influential studies of psychological safety, which is the sense that you can be honest and open and take interpersonal risks at your workplace without fear of punishment. She has also published influential papers on team formation and organizational learning. We'll be talking about her book, The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth, which was published last year. Hi, Amy. Thanks for joining us on the show. Chris, thanks for having me. I'd like to start with a definition of psychological safety. People have defined it in various ways, and your succinct way of defining it currently seems to be it's the uh, sense that you can take interpersonal risks in a team or in a group of some kind. Um, so in a classroom environment, what would you define as some sort of interpersonal risks? You know, in a classroom environment, I think the most important interpersonal risk is the risk of failure. It's the risk of raising your hand to say something that doesn't turn out to be brilliant or doesn't turn out to be, you know, the right answer. And many students have learned through their K through 12 education that it's much smarter to hold back, right? To not take risks, to wait until you're just darn sure you've got it right, and then to raise your hand. And that's really an anathema to learning. So have you seen examples of professors um, doing things that are particularly good or not good in terms of establishing psychological safety? Yeah, I think that when professors point out that the whole job of learning is to stretch, right? Is to try things and learn things you don't know on the way in. Um, they are taking a first important step to clarifying that risk taking is really part of the learning process, right? So they're just framing the activity that way. This isn't your Olympic medal winning final demonstration, right? This is the uh, the opportunity to try things that you haven't tried before, to take risks, to speak up, um, you know, to uh, to keep an open mind and all and all of that. So are there specific things you say when you're teaching at the outset to establish um, that it's totally fine to take risks and you won't be graded harshly for taking them? Absolutely. In fact, I, I teach primarily by the case method. So I will often say, first of all, the material that I'm teaching is not the kind of material like calculus where there's a right answer and a wrong answer. It's the kind of material where we're going to have to grapple together with, with difficult, challenging situations. I teach this course on general management. So it's, you know, it's, it's how human beings behave, how you wrestle with trade-offs, how you pull in other people and other areas of expertise to try to get a clearer sense of, of a complicated decision and so on. So I say many of the things we teach, first of all, don't have a right answer. Um, and second of all, your learning will be greater when you're willing to take risks. In fact, I tend to grade students based on the degree to which things they do and say help their colleagues learn. Right? And, and so if they're willing to take a risk, if they're willing to sort of put a wacky idea out there, that challenges and stretches their colleagues. So I, it, it helps everybody's learning. 
So those are some of the kinds of things I would say at the outset. And I call that framing the work or framing the activity. Right. Yeah. And your list of things to do, that's the first one. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Framing the work. And then, of course, in my teaching with case method teaching, it's all about asking questions. It's a, it's a continual process of asking probing questions, not yes, no questions, not right, wrong questions, but tell me how you think about that. You know, tell me what the concerns are. Tell me what the other side might be. Right. So you're, 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 I'm looking, I'm looking for diverse inputs. So one of the things you mentioned towards the end of your book in the Q and a, um, section is sometimes you hear about leaders with big egos like Steve Jobs who seem to be very fearsome they, they, they create an atmosphere that does not appear to be psychologically safe in any way and I think some professors may have that mindset too especially if they have a reputation um, uh, mm-hmm, of, of mm-hmm. that sort and um, sometimes those professors can be popular so what would you say to professors sure. who who do something like that who try to establish an atmosphere where they but- dominate? I think where those kinds of professors are popular is where they are doing two things at the same time. They are conveying that they want to hold you to the very highest standards, right? And so they're not going to be satisfied with glib or, you know, comments or answers that show you haven't really tried very hard. So they're they're both holding you to the highest standards, but they're at the same time conveying that they believe in you. Right. They're not holding you to high standards so they can trip you up, right? That their intention is to sort of do a gotcha. They're holding you to high standards because they honestly believe you're able to reach them. Because I don't think pe- professors who are sort of tyrants are popular. I think professors who stretch you and leave you feeling like, yeah, I really, I really gave it all I had. And I, uh, you know, I felt good about that. Um, those are the ones who are popular. So I, I think in the, you know, in the in the context of a, a Steve Jobs, he was obviously a genius, and he left unanswered the question of how much more could have been done in the company had others' voices been heard as well. It's an unanswered question, right? We don't know. Right. It could be that you know, no, he was always the smartest person in the room, and. There was no need to listen to anybody else. Uh, I'm willing to entertain that hypothesis. Or it could be that being the smartest guy in the room, in quotes, you know, conveying that idea that no one else really has anything of value to offer, um, destroyed value or, or failed to create value. We'll never know in that sense. But I think the chances that other people, the other smart people that were hired in that company, um, didn't have more to give are rather slim. And the same is true in a classroom, right? The chances that your students don't have more to give if you let them know that you believe they have it um, are, are also slim. Right. I used to work in usability, and I, I do know some of the people who worked on Apple interfaces originally were unhappy with some usability errors mm-hmm. and started to creep into projects. Um, so. Mm. Um, like the, what, they called it the hockey puck mouse, the mouse that was perfectly round. You couldn't tell which way it was yeah. up just by holding it yeah. um, around. Not good. Yeah. 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 So maybe, maybe Apple was not great at catching some errors. Right. Yeah. And you know, there's, they, they, um, they love to boast about their design and that everything's perfect and that jobs was, you know, all over every corner and everything. But 
when I first got the little headphones in the triangle, you can't get them back in there, right? Once they're out, you can't get them back in. Yeah. You know, as long as you wind, you wind as tight as you can or as loose as you can, and the things don't go right back into the nests. So to me, that's also a design error. Things should be elegant and usable and delight you. They wanted you to be delighted, but they, they've given us a handful of things that don't delight. Right, right. So you also talk about, well, I, the whole concept of psychological safety is about teams and about leaders. And so now you have a lot of educational environments where students are placed in teams and they're supposed to manage themselves. <laughs> Sometimes there is no designated leader. Um, in teams yep. without a designated leader, um, what should professors monitor? You know, the the purpose of using teams in, a, in an educational setting is to help people learn how to do this because their future work um, is almost invariably going to involve some degree of teamwork. And so the first thing to recognize is that teamwork's hard, in part because of our our hardwiring. You know, we're sort of hardwired uh, to have what Lee Ross at Stanford calls naive realism, meaning we believe we see reality. <laughs> and, and I believe you see reality too, as long as you sort of see it my way. But as soon as you come in with a different point of view, I, I'm initially uh, defensive about it, right? I will, I will push back. So, so if you have teams without leaders, which I think a lot of student teams do, you need to make sure your students have a fighting chance of learning how to do this well. So in other words, you can't just let them sink or swim because an awful lot of them will sink. So you need to give them uh, some some skills, some tools. A, a team launch is a really good thing to do. A team launch where people uh, in the teams are asked to come together and clarify their goal, talk about their norms. You know, Even such small things as norms about coming to meetings on time can be absolutely critical in keeping the interpersonal goodwill alive that allows cooperation. And do you manage teams in your courses? <laughs> um, I do use a, a number of team exercises. Um, I don't manage them. Um, I, I, I um, encourage them to manage themselves. I do teach some concepts that help them do that. Now, my students, um, most of my students are either MBA students, they're 26, 27 years old on average, or executives who are, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s um, on average. So they all have some experience already. They all have work experience already. They've all worked in teams. But I still try to convey some concepts and some tools and skills that will help them do well. And then we get the wonderful data of the variance. Uh, let's say I give, you know, six teams or 10 teams or 20 teams um, identical sort of challenges and some do better than others. Then we can debrief what happened and, and we can learn more about how the ones that performed well did that and not in a spirit of, of um, <clears throat> punishing those who didn't, but in a spirit of, in a way, the ones who did the worst are, are well positioned to learn the most. So when teams are discussing the issues that have a more social nature, something like discrimination and prejudice, those discussions can go awry. Ah, yeah. How do you prepare students for those types of discussions? Is there anything special you do to prepare students for those sorts of topics? 
the most important thing I do is, is simply to remind them this is difficult. It's supposed to be difficult, right? It's not, it's not, um, because I think if you, if you get blindsided by the challenge and you expect, let's say, everyone to see some issue the same way you see it, that's, you're going to get blindsided. Um, then it makes a, an already difficult activity even more difficult. So it's really, it's setting the stage. It's letting them know this is going to be hard. And, and there's probably two crucial things that are two sides of the same coin that are necessary to doing this hard thing well. And one is inquiry. You know, one is the art, and it really is an art, of asking good questions, right? So good questions aren't leading questions. They aren't, well, you must see it this way, right? Uh, in fact, you're asking good questions, right? Good questions are ones that focus me appropriately on a, on a particular issue and give me space to respond. And, and then you look like you're listening intently, Right. So you're trying to teach your students to do the same thing. One. And then two is the art of perspective taking, which is the, you know, the genuine attempt to imagine. That's where imagination is so important to imagine what the world looks like from your shoes. And that isn't something that's just limited to people who have, you know, very different backgrounds or upbringings or expertise areas than yours. It also includes um, just anyone, right? It, you know, it could be, you could be having an argument with your sister, or your brother, who has the same parents and blah, blah, blah. And yet they still can be seeing a situation in a very different way. And it's a, it's, it's like the job of a, a kind of detective. You want to find out what that looks like as best you can. So have you had cases where teams got stuck when they were discussing prejudice and discrimination? <sighs> I probably, I don't really have enough data to answer that question. I mean, I, I, I work with the first year MBA students um, on a more, a more general interpersonal skills portion of a course. Um, and that surely happens. The challenge I have there is I'll end up with about 15 teams at once. And then I'll be debriefing. So this isn't a strength, right? I'll be debriefing the 90 students all in one room. And I'm not always able to get down to the nitty gritty of exactly what happened. Um, okay, so when you form teams, um, I'm in an engineering school, and I know we don't actually do this in my department, but some engineering professors use some software to match team members so teams don't end up with people who are too similar to one another and so on. There's a computer program that can do this. Right. Is there any research showing that a certain sort of mix or configuration is good for psychological safety? Like, say I had information about race or gender or anything like that. I don't know. So I don't know the answer to that. And I, I would not want the answer to be, although it's not impossible, that higher homogeneity is going to create higher psychological safety. But it's possible that that's true. But I don't know. Um, but what I do know is um, there's great research that says team diversity is not a natural predictor of performance effectiveness, right? In fact, it's a, it's like a scatter plot, but if anything, the regression line is slightly tilted toward the homogeneity. In other words, the, the diverse teams that are put together on purpose to be diverse so that you can learn and accomplish complex tasks often don't reach their potential. 
Um, and what the research does show is that insert psychological safety as a moderating variable. And in fact, you then can leverage the benefits of diversity. So to put that simply, what you see is diverse teams performance is all over the map tending toward the negative. But when you have high psychological safety in the diverse teams, then the performance is strongly positive. Right. I've seen terrific papers about that in the last few years. And um, it's interesting that you can't really leverage dissent unless people dissent. Right, right, right. So if you're not you're not hearing the dissent, you can't leverage it. And then if you're not able and willing to process the dissent, you can't use it, right? So if you're not sort of thinking, oh, that's interesting, rather than, oh, that's annoying, you're not going to get very far. So this question is a bit of a stretch, but I've heard some professors say that when students switch to using Zoom because of coronavirus and they could chat, they could type in the chat window, some students who were initially quiet were more open to sharing their opinions. Have you done any research or seen any research about getting people to use the chat feature? No, although, you know, it's certainly possible that students who are more um, introverted or more likely to hold back in a face-to-face or especially a large face-to-face setting, um, many of them will be more willing to express themselves in writing. I think that's a, I think that's likely true, but I haven't seen any research. Um, I do have some new research on global virtual teams um, where psychological safety is emerging as the most important factor in their, in their effectiveness, um, which given that a fair amount of their work is going to be through, through writing, through Slack and email and chat and so forth, um, it, um, it might suggest that psychological safety still matters, but in a slightly different way. So what were the other factors that you measured there? Well, um, a whole bunch of things like um, technology availability, um, uh, time zones, you know, the sort of the usual coordination structural challenges um, were, were measured and they matter, but psychological safety was the, the biggest driver. And these were teams that they formed before COVID, but they are continuing to work um, that way, obviously, through COVID. So one thing that can happen, I'm not an expert on this research, but there's some research showing that at very high levels of team cohesion, people are very similar to one another. They feel comfortable or they feel safe to such a degree um, that they also spend a lot of their time socializing yeah. because they're almost too comfortable with each other. And then there's a little bit of research showing that they also try too hard to be agreeable. <laughs> but just taking the socializing problem how do you frame the work so that students who happen to be similar to we, toward each other aren't um, so comfortable that they actually socialize more and focus on the work less? You bet. So I like to think of this as, um, you know, comfortable does come with psychological safety, but um, it's not a, to me, it's not about figuring out how comfortable to be and then but, and then not enough, you know, and then lower the psychological safety. It's about the, the comfort, the uncomfortableness that you want to introduce is the uncomfortableness of performance standards. In other words, you want people to be uncomfortable, not achieving, right? So that the socializing, limiting the socializing ought to come from ambition, not from fear. And so it, you, what you want is for teams to really get psyched about 
achieving as much as humanly possible. And great. I look to my right, look to my left. Here are some people I think I can get along with. So let's do it. Like, let's stretch ourselves. Let's challenge ourselves to do the very best job we can. And where's your research going now? <laughs> That's a really good question. You know, I've been I've been so overwhelmed by um, queries and questions and and requests through the COVID that I almost don't have time to think about it. But um, I think one of the most promising areas is a is some work in progress on on joint problem solving as an orientation in teams. Right? And it's an, it's an orientation toward two things. One, seeing the problem that we have as shared and seeing solution making as necessarily requiring co-production. And when those two aspects are present, and this is measurable, um, it helps people who are working across boundaries, especially expertise boundaries, uh, to come together and 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 make progress despite the challenge of of what they're facing, and I think it's fair to say that they make progress by inviting input and offering what they can. Right, so it's this dance of inviting and offering uh, that's mutual, and um, and this is work. This is shared work on uh, with Michaela Kerasi, who's a professor at the Harvard School of Public Health. And we've been looking at healthcare delivery teams um, in, in focused initially on just chronic disease management, but now now more broadly at, at, at work in a big healthcare delivery system. So this is work in the field. Work in the field, yes, yes. And 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 by the way, there is a uh, there is a potential here for lab research, I think, to uh, to to test this orientation and its utility for again, complex tasks. So you're saying if people bring a mental model to work that they share. Exactly. Uh, I think some people show up with a mental model where they are, um, they're less likely. Um, do you think they're bad experiences that, that people have earlier in their career make them less likely to want to engage in this dance? I think that's, I think that's probably, that's probably one good reason. The other might be they just haven't experienced it before, right? They've been doing let's say in, in the school system, by and large, they're doing knowable tasks, you know, that, that aren't ones that necessarily are uncertain or require collaboration or diverse perspectives to make progress. And so they just don't have experience doing it. If you've, if you've grown up with um, right answer tests and right answer coursework, um, you're not going to approach something as a joint problem solving activity. So one of the reasons I ask that is that some students early on can be intimidated. I'm thinking of my personal background. When I took a humanities course my freshman year, uh, some students had been in schools where they had already read Greek plays by Aeschylus and Euripides and were familiar with them already. And that was sort of intimidating to me. So it's not um, maybe not the kind of situation you're applying in the corporation, but in the classroom, what do you do with students who are in the situation where they feel intimidated by others? It's so important right? because people, students really do come to higher education with differential backgrounds. And, you know, many students have, for example, really learned to write well, to analyze Greek plays, for example, or to analyze literature and, and identify themes. And, and others just haven't, right? They haven't done that sport yet. And 
And so I think it's really important to offer those students without that background some opportunity to get up to speed um, quickly with either um, some guidelines for how you do this well, some intensive feedback. I haven't thought about this before, but you could certainly imagine uh, teams and peer learning um, and especially, you know, when engineering students come into the humanities courses, there's a real opportunity there for mutual learning. Um, I remember my, you know, my brother, who's 17 months older than I am, went to MIT and I was at Harvard down the road. And he was so great at ex- helping me with my physics problem sets, um, w- you know, and sort of explaining them and get objects and show me how things worked in in a way and and I tried to help him with writing right and it was and I think you can do that in in teams of freshmen as well I'm excited about the potential for higher education professors to you know to to make learning I mean their job is learning and to and to increasingly make learning on multiple dimensions you know interpersonal learning content learning um, to be even more engaging and exciting and safe. Are there any scholars working in this area or books in this area that you really admire? Well, I'm I'm a big fan of um, my colleague Mike, Monica Higgins at the Graduate School of Education, and she's been taking the organizational work, the organizational insights, management insights into the K through twelve setting, and doing really great research with with her doctoral students as well. Well, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. You can follow Amy on Twitter at Amy C. Edmondson, and you can also find her books wherever books are sold. We'll have two more episodes, and after that, we'll be taking an indefinite break. So unfortunately, you won't get a new episode every two weeks after that. But we do hope to come back at some point. I hope you enjoyed listening to the show over the past three years. I've definitely enjoyed seeing your reviews on iTunes and hearing from many of you over email and in person. If you want to get in touch, you can contact me at podcast at heterodoxacademy.org or on Twitter at chrismartin76. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on iTunes because it helps other people find out about the show. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Heterodox Academy. Find us online at heterodoxacademy.org, on Twitter at HDX Academy, and on Facebook. This podcast is for informational purposes only and doesn't represent the views of Heterodox Academy.